right hand. Thank you, Marty, and thank you, Daryl. Uh, if you'd be so kind, uh, fellow students, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to be picking up in uh, verse 12. This is the letter to the church at Pergamum. It's the third letter, remember, written by Jesus to the seven local churches located in Asia Minor, which is in modern-day western Turkey. Uh, Rob's going to put up a slide of the map of the seven churches, and you can see that these churches are on a postal route. Actually, it, it forms kind of a U-shape. If you start with Ephesus right there, you see Patmos was the island off Asia Minor, off western Turkey, where the letter was written. And the first letters to Ephesus, then a little bit north of that is Smyrna, a little bit north of that is Pergamum, and then you turn south and go Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. So it's kind of a, an upside-down V or an upside-down U. Uh, there, two of these are port cities, obviously Ephesus and uh, Smyrna. Uh, Pergamum's interior about 15, 20 miles, and you have three, four other churches in a straight line. They're all on a Roman postal route. So when these churches got the letters... Uh, it was a circular letter, I guess, if you will. A messenger from every church got a letter, and they followed the road, and so all seven churches heard all seven letters, which is the same thing we're hearing today at this point in time. Uh, remember that uh, these churches were real churches with real people and real problems, right? Some of when you read these letters, you say, oh, that is me. I can relate to that, or that is us at that point. But these churches represent far beyond just a local church. They really represent all churches throughout history. Every church can be categorized by one of these seven church issues. So if you look at any church throughout history, including today, you will have churches that look an awful lot like Ephesus. You have churches that look an awful lot like Smyrna or Pergamon, which we're going to go through today. So uh, there's an additional set of analysis here, not just local church with local problems, not just these churches represent all churches, but there's also an individual application to all this too. Remember, the last words of every one of these commentaries to the churches are, he who has or she who has what? Yes. An ear. If you have one ear, you can hear and you're responsible. So there's an individual application as well. But there's also a suggestion by some commentators, not agreed by all, that these churches represent specific eras of church history. So, for example, the first letter to Ephesus would represent the apostolic church. And that covers a time from about 30 to about 100 A.D. The Smyrna church would represent the persecuted church or the suffering church, and that covers the era from about 100 A.D. to about 313 A.D., uh, that's when you had 10 Roman emperors who instituted an enormous amount of perse persecution against the church. The third letter under that analysis, Pergamum, would represent the compromising church, which we're going to talk about today. The church that married the world. And this covers the era from about 313 A.D. when Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the empire. So you go under Smyrna where there's much, much persecution to one day Constantine laid down an edict and all of a sudden the church that was being persecuted now becomes the official church of the religion and there's all kinds of reasons why people want to be Christian, right? Lots of political reasons because this is the way to get to power, etc., etc. So that's when the church married the world. And that time frame would cover about 313 to about 600 and that's when the papacy became ascendant and that's when we're going to go next week into Thyatira. Now remember, when you look at these letters to seven churches, Jesus follows a very, very specific format when he's reviewing these letters. He begins with the name of the church being addressed, and every one of these seven names has a meaning. What do we say the meaning of Ephesus was? Maiden of choice, darling, so it's very much how God reviews or views his bride. Smyrna has to do with myrrh, we talked about last week, or bitterness, the being crushed in persecution. The name Pergamum is broken down into per, which means completely or thoroughly. So the first part of Pergamum means thoroughly. And gamos, where we get monogamy or polygamy, gamos means married. So Pergamum is the church that is thoroughly married to the world. And that is in its name itself. Here's the key idea. Spiritual compromise with the world invites sin into God's house. Sinners are always welcome in God's house. Always. Sin never is welcome in God's house. And we're going to talk about that because that gets kind of interesting because sometimes the sin and the sinner are kind of inextricably bound up. And Jesus Christ is utterly committed to separating you from your sin. 
period, because he knows it's cancer and it will kill you. Correct? Say amen. Tell me you're with me. All right, verse 12. Let's jump in. Chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church at Pergamum write, now remember he's talking about the city of Pergamum. It's about 80 miles north of Ephesus on the map, about 45 miles northeast from Smyrna. There is a small town named Bergama, B-E-R-G-A-M-A. -E Interestingly enough, also carries the, the gamos from the uh, uh, married. In Turkey today, it's got a population of about 20,000. So it's a small town, same location. Uh, this city is about 20 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. So this is not a port city, but it's an inland city. In John's day, the city of Pergamum had about 200,000 people. So a very large, large uh, city. It was built on the side of about a thousand foot high mountain cone, if you will, a volcanic cone built on a, a very broad fertile plain. Pergamum had been a significant city in this region for about 250 years. It had been the capital of this Roman province for 250 years. Now that's older, just about as old as the U.S. is. So this city has got a long, long, long history. It was the first city in the empire to build a temple to emperor worship. So this city was the site and the source of this cult of emperor worship. Remember what we talked about last week. We said that emperor worship was a political maneuver on the part of Caesar to garner political loyalty. But do you know when humans become worshipped, it does strange things to your head? Well, every Caesar then really began to think that they were worthy of the worship, right? What happens to people when they think they're worthy of worship? They follow the way of Satan, right? I mean, they, they wind up believing the lie at that point in time. So this city is, takes the lead in that. It's a very wealthy city. It's a very wicked city. A couple things you should know about Pergamum. It was very famous in ancient times. It had a library of 200,000 manuscripts. Now, this was before we had high-speed printing and HP wasn't in that business or anybody else. So all these scrolls were handwritten. 200,000 scrolls handwritten. This is labor, labor, labor. So this was a very, very big deal at that point. Unfortunately, uh, the, it was the second largest library in the world. The largest one was in Alexandria, Egypt, and it only got bigger because when Mark Antony and his lovely girlfriend Cleopatra got hooked up, he took the entire library at Pergamum and exported it to Alexandria as a gift to her. Here, dear, is the Library of Congress of the day. You know, that's what it was at that point in time. So it was quite a gift. I don't know that she got around to reading any of that, but nonetheless, it was quite a, quite a library. The other thing Pergamum was very well known for, apart from its university library, was its manuscripts and its parchments. Uh, they had uh, developed a process of preparing very, very thin sheets of goat and, and sheep skin that you could write on. See, prior to that, the only thing you wrote on was papyrus. And papyrus was made out of a reed paper, not nearly as um, durable as a parchment that was made out of animal skin. So this was another thing that they were extremely well known for. <clears throat> now, the second thing that Jesus does after he tells you the name of the city, he identifies himself as the author. And you say, well, that's a duh. But when you read these seven letters, when Jesus says, to the church at Ephesus... The next thing he does is give you a description of himself, and he says, To the church at Ephesus, I'm the one who holds the seven stars in my right hand, and I walk among the seven lampstands. To the church at Pergamum, he gives them a different description of himself based on what they need to hear. Each church gets a different description of Jesus, who's the author. So the church at Pergamum should have figured out they were in really, really deep trouble when he identifies himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, right? says this, when we write a letter, where do we put our name? Sincerely yours, your name. When the ancient times, when they write a letter, all of Paul's letters follow this format, what do they do? They start with the name. I am the one writing this letter to you, and therefore you should pay attention based on who's doing the writing. Jesus is saying, the Pergamum church, I am the one who's got the two-edged sword at that point in time. And that's the very first thing he says in the letter. Wow, it's a little ominous, right? I mean, you would think maybe, maybe some things are not out of, uh, out of whack here. The, the sword here, the Greek for that is the romphaia, R-O-M-F-A-I-A. It's a very long, broad sword, almost as long as, a, not quite as long as a spear, but it's a very long, broad sword used by the Roman infantry 
It was not designed to wound, it was designed to kill. It was designed to dismember you, as a matter of fact. In, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 16, <clears throat> you say, well, Jesus says he has the sword, but in chapter 1, 16, it says the sword comes out of his mouth, which is interesting. See, the mouth is an instrument of speech, right? And one of the names of Jesus is what? The Word of God. That's one of the names of Jesus. Hebrews 4.12 really illustrates this even more when it says the Word of God is what? Living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So it seems that the sword in chapter 2 here refers to the Word of God that is coming out of Jesus' mouth. That's also the name of Jesus. Also interesting is in Revelation 19.15, it shows Jesus Christ waging war on the wicked using the sword of his mouth, which means obviously, and there's a lot of scripture where we are judged according to the word by the word. So the, the word of God is the sword that brings judgment. Is this a one-sided sword or a double-edged sword? <clears throat> Why would they make swords sharp on both sides? You can cut any way you strike, right? Tends to be twice as efficient, at least at that point in time. Now, one thing you must understand, swords are designed to do one thing, to separate. They are designed to separate flesh from flesh, flesh from bone. They're designed to cut. They're designed to sever at that point in time. <clears throat> Ephesians 6, 17 tells us to take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's the only... Uh, offensive weapon in the armory of the Christian, and God's Word has the ability to do at least two things. The first thing God's Word separates the believer from is from sin in the world. So the Word of God separates you from sin and separates you from the world. If you're getting too close to sin, i got a solution for you. Get in the Word, study it, and the Word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, will separate you from your sin. And one of the ways it'll do it is it'll highlight where you're sinning, right? People that sin without conscience never are in the Word. The Word will bring conviction. So it separates you from sin. The other thing that God's Word does, it condemns the world for, of unrighteousness. So it separates the believer from sin and condemns the world of sin. Condemns the world of sin. So this double-edged sword is a sword for salvation for the righteous, and it's a sword of judgment for the wicked. It's double-edged. Make sense? You with me so far? Okay. So after we have the name of the church, the character of the author, now Jesus commends, that means he affirms, the Pergamum church. What are they doing well? Every one of these churches has both, well, that's not true, some have nothing good said about them, and one of them is us. But we're going to get to that in a few weeks. Verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. <clears throat> in every single letter that Jesus writes to the church, he says what? I know. I know I know, I know, okay? He knows, it, you know why one of the reasons he says I know? Because when we read these letters, you know what we do? Jesus, you got it wrong. I'm really not like that. I mean, I'm, I'm not like that. You, you really don't know me. I'm, I'm really a good poison, right? I don't do stuff like that. Jesus says, I know both the good and I know both the bad. I know. I walk among the seven churches I'm up on it at that point in time. The glorified Christ knows everything about his church. The good news is he knows everything about your struggles. He knows everything about our problems. He knows everything about our pressures. He knows about our brokenness. He knows about our temptation. This week, you're going to run into stuff. I have no idea what stuff you're going to run into this week. You know who does? Your loving Savior knows. I says, I know where you live. He knows where you live. He knows who you live with. Right? He knows the situation. Here's the principle. Jesus knows us intimately and amazing grace, he loves us infinitely. I cannot comprehend that. But we rest on that reality that the God, our living Christ, who knows us better than anybody on the planet, loves us more than anybody on the planet. And that is a basis for our faithfulness. Basis for our faithfulness. He says, I know where you dwell. The word dwell here means to settle down permanently. It means to be at home. Now, there are two groups of people mentioned in this letter. There are two groups of people in this church. And the word dwell applies to each group differently. Now, some 
as we're going to find out in this church, were steadfast. They did not run away from the problems. You know, if you dwelled where Satan lived, it'd be real tempted to get a visa or a passport and get out of Dodge, right? I mean, if I'm living where Satan dwells, you would say, uh, let's try relocating. Well, migration might be a good strategy. Well, this church, some in this church said, I know I live where Satan dwells. I'm not moving. I'm steadfast. I'm going to take a stand for truth. And for them, this is an affirmation. But there were some in this congregation, as you're going to find out in a couple of minutes, who were not faithful. They were held to the teaching of Balaam, held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They were not standing for Jesus. They were compromising. These folks, had they dwelled on earth. They settled down. They took up a permanent residence here because they belonged to this earth. Their loyalty was here. Now, where's the Christian's loyalty? You are pilgrims. Right? You're ambassadors, you're sojourners, you're not here long. This world is not our permanent home, it's our tent. It's not our mansion. Where's your mansion? It's not here, right? Your mansion's not here. The book of Revelation frequently talks about people who dwell on the earth. When you read the book of Revelation, you'll see that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, over and over and over. It's not people who just happen to live here. It's people whose home is here. You know why their home is here? Because they don't have one up there. This is home. They don't know Jesus Christ. They're against him. Their loyalty, their values are here. If you want to get a couple of good examples, write down Abraham and his nephew Lot. Remember, Abraham lived in where? Tents. He knew he was a pilgrim. He knew he was passing through. He walked by faith, trusted God. God himself was Abraham's reward, and he was called a friend of God. He, he said he was looking for a heavenly city. He was looking forward to heaven. God met his needs. Now, Lot, what did Lot do? Lot took his tents, and he decided to take a little migration away from Uncle Abraham. And where did he move to? Moved to Sodom. Wow, talk about moving close to Satan's seat. Knowingly moving close to Satan's seat, right? Not a really good idea. He traded his tents, got a condo inside Sodom, ran for political office, joined the city council of a wicked city. And he wasn't doing it because he was trying to do evangelism. He was doing it because he was trying to get rich. Because that's where the good pastures was. Okay? He chose to walk by sight. <coughs> and he got his wealth. You know, when you see him, and I think it's 19, chapter 19 of Genesis, he's on the city council. He's respected. He's got authority. He just doesn't understand the whole thing's going to go to toast when the volcano blows up. Right? How much did he rescue from that? Two daughters in his life. That's it. Everything else got, right, walked. Is that what you say? A walk? Burned up? Oh, yeah, you get it, right. Barbecued. We all understand barbecue. So Abraham was a dweller in heaven. That's where his loyalty was. Lot was an earth dweller. That's what he's talking about here. There are some in this church of Pergamum whose loyalties are in heaven, and there are some, their loyalties are on earth. They were earth dwellers. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, this is not the most, I guess, productive real estate that we would choose to rent. By the way, contrary to popular opinion, sever Satan has never lived in hell. Satan has never been to hell. Hell is not currently open for business, right? Yes, hell will be Satan's home, the lake of fire will be, but Satan's not interested in going there before he has to go there. Would you? I mean, well, let's go to hell, right? Just for a visit. Why would you do that? Satan's not stupid. He understands the lake of fire. Where is Satan's field of operations? Here. Here. Could be your neighborhood. I'm sure you have some neighbors that you think might be where Satan's throne is, right? In their own home, right? I mean, you know. His field of operations have been planted earth ever since the Garden of Eden. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, Satan is the god of this world. Ephesians 2, 2 says, the Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So Jesus says, Pergamum Church, I know you're sharing living space with Satan's headquarters. And of course, our logical question is, well, what is exactly Satan's throne? What does that mean? Right? Well, remember, this is a very pagan, pagan city. First things, Pergamum was the center of emperor worship. They had three temples dedicated just to emperor worship. Three. Can you imagine having one city of 200,000 people where you had three temples where you had to go worship the President of the United States? In one city? 
That's getting a little impressed with yourself, right? I mean, but the, these people, Caesars, did that at that point. I mean, every year you had to go into a temple, you had to burn incense, and you had to say, Caesar is God. If you didn't, there were really big consequences we found out last week. Second thing, not just emperor worship, this site was, the, this city was the site of a huge altar to Zeus, which is the chief god, of course, of the Greek Parthenon. This altar was 100 feet square and 40 feet high. And it was shaped like a giant throne. So when you looked at this, you looked at this giant throne, and it was placed where? In the Acropolis. Acropolis means acro, high, polis city. It's the highest part of the city, right? On the top of the hill. That's where they put the, the altar of Zeus. So that could be part of Satan's throne. But the third part is Satan's throne could refer to the worship of their little local healing god named Asclepios. A-S-K-L-E-P-I-O-S. Pergamum was very, very famous for medical arts, for the healing. They had a very famous medical school. Hippocrates was the most famous of all the ancient physicians in Galen, G-A-L-E-N. He was the number two famous physician from the Greek era, and he was one of their most notable practitioners. And they had a temple for this god Asclepios that was used for healing. And the emblem of this healing temple was a snake, right? Even today, you know, you see the uh, symbol for medical arts. It's got intertwined snakes around a pole at that point in time. So there's a lot of superstition that goes along with this medicine, unquote. When you wanted to be healed in the temple as a matter of last resort, you spent the night sleeping on the floor in the solarium, and they had hundreds and hundreds of harmless snakes in this place. And it was thought that if you slept on the floor and a snake would slither over you, you would get instantly healed at that point. And I'm thinking, you people really slept? You said, really? How many drugs did you take in order to sleep in a place where there's hundreds of snakes? I mean, even Indiana Jones, I mean, come on, you know, I mean, there's courage and then there's stupid. So, I mean, you know, I've, I've always been a big favor of um, healthy fear, you know, I mean, you wouldn't put a rattlesnake in your sleeping bag just because you're in Yosemite. I mean, come on. But at any rate, this sounds like, sounds like our old dragon Satan himself, doesn't it? I mean, worshiping, believing that there's uh, uh, demonic, oh, there's not believing, there is demonic activity going on wherever Satan's throne was located. So this place is a very, very pagan place. Emperor worship, Zeus worship, and uh, snake worship in the, in, the, um, in the eyes of trying to be healed. By the way, we look at this and we smile. You can't believe the stuff people do today in order to get physically healed. I mean, it's, some of it's just bizarre. Just, I'm not even going to go there, but at any rate. He says to the church, I'm still in, in, in affirmation mode, you hold fast my name. You hold fast my name. In the Bible, by the way, someone's name represents who they are. Their identity, their character, their program, their work. He says, you are loyal to me. You're not ashamed of my name. By the way, the name of Jesus is the most divisive name in history. When you, you, you can say the word God to anybody, and they can fill that with whatever content they want. If you say God, they can think Buddha. They can think Hindu. God is very, very contentless. But when you say Jesus Christ, we are talking about a historical figure, right? Very divisive. And they did not deny his name. They held on to that. It says they didn't deny his faith either. So this church did not deny the gospel. This church in a very difficult environment did not deny the truth. They had the courage to believe the truth even when they were living in Satan's throne, where Satan's throne was. So there's a lot going on with this church that's good. And now Jesus is going to give an example of someone who did not deny Jesus even in the face of death, and his name is Antipas. It says, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Here's the principle. Some things are worth dying for. Your physical life is not the most important thing in life. Right? You think you're going to live forever here? Come on. The name of Jesus and the truth of the gospel are worth dying for. Period. Now, the word Antipas means against all. Some of us have raised children that are against all, right? They're against everybody. But anyway, this says Antipas, this guy was against everything that, that did not conform to Jesus Christ and the truth of God's word. He was probably one of their pastors, maybe their senior pastor. Uh, and it says, Jesus says, Antipas is my witness. Now, the word witness in Greek is martus, martus, M-A-R-T-U-S, means martyr. Greek just, the, the, martyr just means witness. 
But in the first, second, and third centuries, so many witnesses were slaughtered for their faith that the word martyr ceased to mean witness and became one who dies for their faith. So this guy <laughs> was willing to pay the price for that. Now, it's interesting that Jesus twice says, what? My, my pronoun, my witness, my what? My faithful one. Jesus knows this guy by name. Does he know your name? Yep. Does he know your middle name too? Yep. Yeah, he does. He knows us personally, which is great comfort. Church tradition tells us that Antipas was roasted to death inside of a huge brass bull. The Christ haters put him inside this brass bull, lit a fire underneath it, and roasted him to death inside of it. And the church here had witnessed that and still stayed faithful. There's a lot going on here. Antipas was unwilling to compromise, and it cost him his life. And in our culture, we have people that are not even willing to cost themselves their popularity for the name of Jesus. So it's, it's, it's remarkable here, and I think we need to take this to heart and say, what's the price tag I'm willing to pay? Am I willing to give up a little popularity for heaven's sakes, for heaven's sake? Right? Okay. So he's commended them for what they're doing well. Now he's going to confront and criticize them for what's wrong and what needs correcting. And unfortunately, there were some in this church who were not anywhere near as faithful as Antipas. Verse 14. But, but, sometimes in Scripture that introduces a really good passage. Sometimes in Scripture after that is very depressing, and this is one of those. But I have a few things against you because you have some, underlined the word some, not all, some, who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Verse 15. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now you know you're in trouble when Jesus says, I have a few things against you. Not just one, right? Those of us who think there's only one sin in our life, probably need a little bigger shovel. We're not digging very deep, right? You mean there's more than one thing wrong? He says, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Many in this church were faithful, but some were wicked. By the way, that's true of every church, right? Yeah. The deadest churches probably have some people in it who are alive. And I promise you, we have people going to this church every Sunday that are dead, spiritually dead. Absolutely guaranteed. Don't know Jesus. Pray for them. They keep coming, they're going to hear the truth. The problem was, is that even the faithful ones in this church tolerated false teaching and error. And that's where Jesus was upset. They were tolerating people inside the church who denied the truth and the, and the authority of Scripture. Here's the principle. Interaction with the world is inevitable. Intimacy with the world is infectious. I wanted to say something like an STD, but I, I, I want to be too graphic, but I want to be graphic enough where you get the picture. Intimacy with the world is infectious. You are called to change the world, not be changed by the world. Does that make sense? You are called to change the world. What does Jesus say? You are in the world, not of the world. If you want to have a ministry with alcoholics, which I used to, you don't go to the bar and drink with them. That does not help, right? Does that make sense? Okay. So you must interact. We've got to reach out, but you cannot be intimate to the point where you get infected. So Satan, remember, attacks the church on multiple fronts. You know what his tactic was in Ephesus? His tactic in Ephesus was to keep the church so busy working that they forgot how to worship. So busy serving, they forgot how to love. What's, what was the commendation, or the condemnation? You have left your first love. They were so busy doing that, they forgot the person that they were doing it for at that point. In Smyrna, Satan had tried to destroy the church through persecution and death, and that backfired. That was not a good day in hell or for Satan here on planet Earth because it made the church stronger. The Smyrna church had only good things to be said about it by Jesus Christ. There was not one bad thing said about the Smyrna church. They were in persecution and it purified them. This church at Pergamum is compromising. On the one hand, they hold the biblical truth. On the other hand, they grasp the world with the other hand. They are now unequally yoked with unbelievers inside the church membership. You've got people that know Jesus and people that don't know Jesus or rebellion against Jesus inside the church. They're married to the world and Balaam is the example. 
Now it says, the teaching of Balaam was to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed, idols, commit acts of adultery. Make a note in your Bibles, Numbers 22 to 25 is going to tell us the story of Balaam, the prophet. The Moabite king, remember, wanted Israel destroyed. Israel was moving through his land into the promised land. So he prayed the, paid the prophet Balaam big bucks to come and curse them. Balaam, by the way, had real prophetic gifts. He knew God. So Balak was convinced that if Balaam cursed Israel, those curses would stick and God would enforce them. So he paid him big bucks to come. Balaam was greedy. He was a prostitute prophet for hire. He had hired himself out of the highest bidder, right? Three times Balaam tried to curse God's people. Three times God supernaturally intervened and turned the curses into blessings. Needless to say, Balak was very, very upset because it didn't work out the way he wanted to. And Balaam wanted to earn his hire. And so he told Balak how to get God to judge his own people. He said, you want to get rid of these people? I'll tell you how to do it. Here's what you do. You have beautiful Moabite women go into Israel's camp, sexually seduce the Israeli men into marrying them and participating in their idolatrous, promiscuous love feasts. So we're going to use the lust of the flesh to seduce Israel away from the worship of God. And you know something? It worked just as ordered. And we went through this, and we went through numbers. The, the, the judgment of God at Baal, Peor, 24,000 were killed. So in other words, Balaam's counsel was straight from Satan's mouth. If you can't curse him from the outside, corrupt him from the inside. By the way, our greatest enemies are never from the outside. <laughs> greatest enemies always inside, always in our own hearts at that point in time. So the doctrine of Balaam here teaches the people of God to intermarry with the world, to adopt the values and beliefs of the world, which is in opposition to God, and then they will become just like the world. And that's true. That's true. Christians, on the other hand, are called to do what? Separate from evil. Separate from evil. 2 Corinthians 6 tells us, Do not be unequally yoked or bound together with unbelievers. Here's, the, here's a principle I didn't give Rob. When you marry someone, you become like them. Wait a minute. So was that you, a slide or was that advice before I got married? Yeah, yeah. Well, Kara, you, you got an upgrade, bud. You, all males got an upgrade. Come on, you know this. Here's the point. You become infected by the one you marry. You become infected by all of your close friends. You don't have to be married to be infected with people. This is why choice of friends is so critical. For better or worse, if you hang with God's people, hopefully you'll be catching some good germs, right? And they will spread. That's why we hang together. That's why we fellowship together. So we can reinforce and support the kinds of behaviors, beliefs, and attitudes and actions that Jesus Christ wants in our life. If you hang with people who are enemies from God, you're going to become like them. Some people in this Pergamum church were saying it was okay for Christians to participate in idol-worshiping feasts. It was okay to engage in sex with pagan priests, pagan priestesses. It was all part of a worship ceremony, right? Temple worship. That's what they did at that point in time. And the rest of this church was not confronting the evil in their church family. You know something? Today, this would be no big deal. I'm telling you, it'd be no big deal. Your sexual preferences and practices are not considered to be the business of the church. In our world today, right? You should be able to do whatever pleases you, and no one should ever be able to say anything against you at all. Today, even churches would call this church open-minded, tolerant, loving, and accepting. Because in our culture today, everything's tolerated except God's unchanging truth. That is not tolerated. So everybody's tolerant of the lowest common denominator of wickedness, but when you bring the truth of God's word, that is not tolerated, which is an interesting hypocrisy. James 4.4, 4, if you're looking for a cross-reference. Jesus said, Do you not know that friendship with the world is neutrality toward God? Is that what it says? It says, Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. By the, world, by the way, the world here means anything that is hostile or anything that's opposed to God. Is this world system opposed to God? Who runs it? 
Of course it's hostile to God. Satan controls the levers of much of media, much of, of uh, uh, what passes for government legislation and regulation. We shouldn't be surprised that the world system hates Jesus Christ. You cannot be friends of God and friends of those who hate God. Yeah, choose. It's real simple. This church is refusing to choose. Jesus, the church at Pergamum wanted it both ways. Here's what the church in Pergamum was saying. I want to be married, and I want to have an affair, and I want everybody to be happy with it. <laughs> you know, clue, that's not workable, right? It's not workable. And Jesus is telling me, you've got to stop this stuff. He also confronts them because they're tolerating, quote, some in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans come from Nike, which means to conquer, Laos, which means the people. So it literally means to conquer the people. And a very strong priestly class elevated themselves above the rest of the church, and they dominated the lay people. And these Nicolaitans in this church were spiritual bullies. They were teaching compromise with the world and getting away with it, and they were spiritual terrorists who try and hold people hostage to their opinions. You ever met the spiritual terrorist? My way is the right way. God spoke to me and he hasn't spoken to you, so you need to do it my way. Yeah, we, we all know people like that at that point in time. Well, this church had lots of them. Now, Jesus has diagnosed the problem. He's now got a solution, verse 16. What does he say? He says, repent or else. Have you ever used that word as a parent? Repent or else, right? There's going to be, what does that mean? Here's the choices you have. You know, what the, you know what after comes after or else? Here's the statement of consequences. If you don't repent, here's what I'm going. You know, God is a very rational, logical God. He says, you make choices, you're free to do that. But with every choice you make, I have a consequence that's already hardwired for that. We go crazy when we say, no, I want to choose whatever I want, and I want to choose my consequences. Folks, you, here's, write this down, you cannot control your consequences. You can control your choices. Because the consequences are already hardwired with the choice. What does he say? Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you when? Quickly. And I will give you love and hugs, because I'm a loving, wonderful teddy bear. He says, I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, he says, repent, which means change your mind and change your behavior. Change your direction. Repent literally means a 180 degree turn. So change your attitude and change your action. You know how I know when you believe something? Because you behave it. I don't care what comes out of your mouth. Words are so cheap. Blah, 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 blah. I want to see how you behave. That's what we say with our children, right? Show me what you believe by your behavior. You can tell me, Mom, I'm going to do blah, blah, blah. You know, I'll believe it when I see it done. That's what he's saying. I want to see the change in attitude and action. Now, one of the reasons God is so big on this is 1 Corinthians 5. If you want a really good chapter with about six or seven verses on why the church needs to take care of business in its own house, 1 Corinthians 5 would be a good chapter. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 says, A little leaven, that's yeast, does what? Spreads throughout the whole lump of dough at that point. If you ever made sourdough, you understand that. Yeast spreads throughout the lump of dough, and you know how it spreads? Quietly. Do you see the yeast move? But you see the bread rise. So there's, ab there's consequences from that leaven in there, and you can't prevent it. Sin is a lot like yeast. The spread is inevitable. And yeast puffs up. Sin corrupts by puffing up, right? So sin is a lot like yeast. By the way, anytime you see yeast in a Jewish home, that's a symbol of corruption. That's one of the reasons why, right, Stuart, when you get to, to time, you have to clean the house of all yeast. Because in Scripture, you, during that period of time, yeast is considered wicked. It's considered evil. It's considered a symbol of sin. It inevitably spreads. So in verse 7, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus says, clean out the old leaven. That requires action on the part of the church because sin spreads just like an infectious disease. You know, like the Black Death, it will kill you. So why do we affiliate with it and take it into our homes? <clears throat> 
you know, I could get on a rant here, which I got to be careful of. But some of the stuff that people subscribe to and pay to see on their streaming internet or on their cable channel, why would you import raw sewage into your dinner table and eat it? I mean, you don't go out to the sewer farm and say, gee, I'd like a bowl of this stuff because it really is tasty. Huh? You don't do that, but we do that to our minds all the time. I am amazed at the stuff that people will put into their brain. Garbage in, garbage out. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. And if people stink all the time, maybe it's because they got garbage going in all the time. It's just a thought. If, you, if you're convicted by that, you should be. Do something about it. So, we always welcome the sinner into God's house, but you don't welcome sin into God's house. Folks, the church is not a place where anyone should feel comfortable with their sin. It doesn't mean I'm not going to love you. It doesn't mean we shouldn't love the sinner. You love the sinner. Jesus Christ died for the sinner. But it doesn't mean you can come into God's house and say, I'm going to practice my sin and you've got to accept it. But that's where this culture is headed. You know that. There's going to come many, many, many legal battles in front of us in the next few years, basically saying somebody wants to legislate your morality. Now, I'll tell you, your morality is already legislated. You've got, you got the Magna Carta in your lap at this point in time. See, Jesus loves us dearly, but he hates our sin like toxic venom. He hates our sin. He wants to separate us from our sin because he knows it'll kill us at that point. If anyone in the church persists in practicing sin without repentance, you want, to, you want a definition, write it down. If anyone persists in practicing sin without repentance, Jesus said in 1 Corinthians 5.13, remove the wicked man from yourselves. In other words, you don't have them in your fellowship. You don't have a right to come into God's holy house and practice sin without repentance. By the way, if you can sin without repentance, without confession, without conviction, if sin doesn't bother you, then you better take a look and see if you even belong to Him. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have living God in you. You know how He reacts to sin? He hates it. So if you can sin without a conviction, maybe you don't have the Holy Spirit. Just think about it. Bring it. He says, either you repent or I am coming to you quickly. So the question is, when should you repent? When do we repent? <laughs> yeah, when you feel the heat, you see the light, right, sister? Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I am the poster child for rationalizing internal behavior that I should not do. I have told God, well, it's really not that bad. Well, um, how about if I forsake it tomorrow? How about next week? I just, you know, we all have our little pet sins that we're really comfortable with. My little pet rattlesnake. It won't hoit me. It's just my little pet rattlesnake, right? Jesus said, you get bit with a sucker, it's going to kill you stone dead. And we say, well, this is just a little sin. I mean, it's not a big deal. You know something? A baby king cobra, even if it's only 18 inches long, will kill you a stone dead as an 18-foot one. It's still poisonous, right? We just rationalize the behavior. And Jesus says, you've got to repent now. Now. I won't want you dead. I don't want you harmed. By the way, if you don't, I'm going to make war against what does it say? I'm going to make war against... What's your Bible say? I'm going to make war against... Them. Who's them? Us. Yeah? Here's the principle. Jesus will make war against both those who teach compromise from sin, and they had people who were teaching compromise with sin, and he's going to make war against those who compromise with the false teachers. You got people in the church that will tell you it's no big deal to sin because God's in the business of forgiveness. And if you believe that, then you have no clue as to the price Jesus Christ paid for your sin or how much he hates it and how much you will be judged for it by hanging on to it, the price tag. I didn't say you're not going to heaven. You know Jesus is your Savior, you're going to heaven. But if you can sin with impunity, you better go back and check. He's going to make war on two sets of people, and this church had both of them. Every church has both of them. There are people who teach you that compromise with sin is okay, and then you have the vast majority who compromise with those false teachers and refuse to deal with them and tell it straight up and say, that's a lie, that's not from God, and we're not going to put up with that garbage. And there's lots and lots of churches who, in the name of tolerance, have died. 
because the Holy Spirit's simply not going to live with that stuff. You've been in churches and I've been in churches where the Holy Spirit hasn't been there for 10 years. And they still don't, haven't figured it out. Well, they have no discernment because the Holy Spirit hasn't given them to them. Now, apparently, this Pergamum church did repent. There is today a very small church in Bergama, Turkey, the same city. So apparently they did repent, unlike Ephesus, which did not, and now is a heap of ruins. Verse 17, here comes the personal application. You who have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows of him or receives it. So everyone has an ear. Make sure you're hearing today. And what's our one line? We've said here over and over again. When you leave here, before you leave here, I want you to write down one thing. Just one, not two. One thing that you will do with what you've learned today. Here's the problem. If you do nothing with what you've learned today, you've wasted an hour. You don't want to waste an hour, especially when Jesus is coming quick. Could be coming this afternoon. So make sure, Lord, what do you want me to do with what I'm learning today? That's the question. 1 John 5 tells us that overcomers, he says to him overcomes, overcomers are all Christians. If you're believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, believing you may have life through his name, you're an overcomer. And your faith is what overcomes. And what's the promise? He says, I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna. Interesting that the name of this class is manna. I did not name it this class, but it's very appropriate. Manna is angel food cake. Right? It's honey bread from heaven. That's what it was. In the Old Testament, manna was the bread of life that literally came down from heaven to sustain Israel in their exile in the wilderness. Are we in exile on this planet? Are we aliens here? Are we pilgrims? We're just pilgrims like the Israelites were. And the bread of life that we have been given is Jesus Christ, John 6, 51. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Manna was a picture, the honey bread from heaven. In the Old Testament, we have the real deal in this life, which means your life is sustained by Jesus. The bread of life is all the bread you need, all the life you have in him. Now, it's hidden manna. It's hidden because the world doesn't understand it. The world does not understand the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. It doesn't understand that God's word sustains our life. But we do. By the way, when uh, Exodus 16, uh, 33, Israel took some of the manna and hid it in the ark as a memorial. And they carried that ark with them into the promised land at that point in time. He also says, I'm going to give him a white stone. Now, there's a lot of interpretations on what Jesus meant when he said, I'm going to give him a white stone. One, in courts of law, the judge had white stones and black stones, right? And they would render a verdict, and they would put a white stone in a container, a black stone in a container, and no one would know what it was until the judge rolled the stone onto the bench. And if it was a white stone, you were... And if it was a black stone, you were guilty, right? And that's, it was, so it was a form of judgment at that point in time. <clears throat> when Jesus said, I'm going to give you a white stone, you know what he's saying? I've declared you innocent. I've declared you innocent. Based on Jesus' finished work on the cross, you are innocent. You have a white stone in the court of God's law. The second thing was white stones were given as part of the prize for winning in the athletic games. You not only got a Stephanos, which is a victor's wreath made of olives, branches, but you also got a white stone as part of winning. <clears throat> they were called a tessera, T-E-S-S-E-R-A, tessera. And when you won, you got the wreath and you got the tessera, the white stone, and that was your admission ticket, your free admission ticket into all the public entertainment that followed the games. So it was a free entry, right? Free admission ticket. So the application here is Jesus is saying, I'm allowing my overcomers, my, my believers, free admission into heaven. You have a white stone. You can get in. Does that make sense? There's a number of meanings by this white stone. Lastly, he says, I'm going to give you a new name written on the stone which no one knows but him. This is a promise, amazingly, of intimacy. In, in, in that day, the ancient times, a host would invite you to dinner. You're going to come for dinner. And at your seat, at your place, you would have a white stone. So you had 12 people for dinner. You'd have white stones marking where you were supposed to sit. Underneath each of those white stones would be a personal, private, written message from the host to you. Unique to you. Nobody got the same message. So it, it spoke of the one-of-a-kind, unique, intimate relationship you had with the host. So when Jesus is talking about this, he's saying that everyone in this class of manna right now has a unique relationship with Jesus Christ that is special to you. 
No one in this room has the same relationship with Jesus Christ you have. Your relationship with Jesus Christ, even though there's a lot in common, is unique. You know why? Because you're unique. Jesus made us one of a kind, and he made the relationship he has with us unique and special. There's an old tune that says, no one understands like Jesus. It's really true. We have a lot in common in our relationship with Jesus, but no one in the universe has the exact same relationship. So that's what he says. I'm going to give you a new name on that stone. Some people say, well, what's the name? It says, no one knows but him. This is a unique thing between just you and Jesus. I don't know when you're going to know that, but he knows your name, and you know Jesus in ways that no one else does. It's one of a kind. All right. Here's the summary. Here's the key idea. Spiritual compromise invites sin into God's house. Compromise is very, very common. You know what you do when you compromise? You make concessions to get a deal done. There's many things in life compromise is appropriate with, right? But when it comes to the truth of the gospel and how you get to heaven, there's no compromise with that. You're going to get into the blood of the Son, and that's the only way. Period. You don't compromise with biblical truth. So spiritual compromise invites sin into God's house. Sinners are always welcome into God's house. Sin never is. Verse 13, number two, Jesus knows you intimately and loves you infinitely, so stay faithful. Point three, some things are worth dying for, like the name of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. Fourth, interaction with the world is inevitable. As a matter of fact, it's commanded. We should be interacting with the world. Intimacy with the world is infectious. You are called to change the world, not be changed by the world. And lastly, Jesus will make war against both those who teach compromise with sin and those who compromise with the compromisers. It is so easy in our culture today when someone says, well, that's not a big deal. You stand on the word and don't be afraid to call a spade a spade. If it's not true, it's not true. Amen? All right. I love you all. Right, Nancy Gore? And because I love you and because Jesus loves you, he tells you the truth. Take this to heart. Look at your life. Say, Lord, to what extent am I the church in Pergamos? Where have I compromised and what do you want me to do with it? Amen?